So someone else says, don't you underperform the market? Mm -hmm. Cliff's response is not over reasonable time horizons, but occasionally, aren't you a cowardly little nobody? <laughs> Come talk that beep in person, little coward. Oh, and beep you and yours. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Morning glory. You know who I thought of a lot this week? Gumby? No, Mikel Bridges, man. I just wanted to go to Chipotle. Oh, oh man. <laughs> Mikel's coming up a lot on the pod these days. Because I just think that's the coolest thing ever. Fair enough. Yeah. That's, uh, have you gone once this year? Uh, in honor of Mikel, yes, I did go. Okay. But not every day. No. Okay. It's probably the right ratio. Not every day is probably the right ratio. When's the last time you went to Chipotle? We picked someone up for my son and a couple of his friends this year. But myself eating it? I don't know. I'm not sure. And don't let Mikel down like that. All right. Whew. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. And we, we're going to start this episode off with some listener mail. So reminder, you can send us your thoughts, your feelings, your comments, your questions, skippydoogles at gmail.com. As always, we're going to hit that jingle. This listener mail comes to us from Bob. Thank you, Bob. And what Bob did was he sent us a Business Insider article about a finance blogger by the name of Eddie J. Elfenbein, or Elfenbein. Sorry if I got your name wrong, Eddie. Bob, just so you know, Bill Eichmann is pissed that you sent us a Business Insider article. What? What's What's the beef there? <laughs> you, you don't know this? <laughs> no. Okay, so if... For those who didn't get the joke, have you been following what Bill Aikman has done in the past two months? You mean like his DEI and plagiarism convos? <laughs> yeah. No. So, I mean, yes, but, but Business Insider, I don't know. He's largely accountable for the Harvard president uh, being fired. But what happened during this, he became really focused on the plagiarism with the Harvard president and Business Insider then went through his wife's dissertation oh. and claimed that she had plagiarism, which is still being, there, there's certainly some inaccuracies still being debated. And she's apologized, right? So yeah. Bill Aikman is burning down the Business Insider headquarters along with any prestigious institution he could find that uh, hmm. makes it mad. I did not follow that particular part of the story there. So... <laughs> Thanks for enlightening. Back to our regularly scheduled program here. So we had Eddie J. Alphabin. The backstory here is that Eddie, since 2006, has been posting on a blog. It's called Crossing Wall Street. So the way this works is Eddie has this buy list. And the buy list consists of 25 stocks. And he will hold those 25 stocks over the course of a year. So it's a different methodology, but similar to what you and I kind of do, like when we buy our stocks, it's not a trade in and trade out constantly type thing, right? He'll hold them. So he has 25 stocks for the year. At the beginning of the next year, he sells five of those stocks and buys five new stocks according to whatever his criteria is. 
So the vast majority of his equities he'll hold over some period of time, but he only buys new stocks and sell stocks start of the year. That's some background. He's been doing this since 2006. Again, as I said, posting on his blog, Crossing Wall Street. And what it seems like occurred was after some time of him posting his buy list and showing his results right at the end of every year, that Peeps was like, can you get an ETF up in this chicha? Actually, I don't know if they said ETF specifically, but they said, like, is there a way for us to invest with you of some sort? I don't know if it was an ETF specifically, but he started an ETF in 2016. He kicked this off. It is on Advisor Shares. It's called Advisor Shares Focused Equity ETF and the ticker CSW. That's the backstory. But did you bear the lead there? Yes. I don't think you actually got to the number. I did he's, not. He's currently that's pretty solid performance. He outperformed Buffett. He outperformed Kathy Wood, which listen, my cat can outperform Kathy Wood, but the Buffett piece is pretty important. Yeah, and to be clear, he's outperformed Buffett since 2018. So yeah. since since 2018, he's roughly, or even since since the uh, the launch of this, he's like roughly with the S and P 500, a little bit better than the S and P 500. So he's outperformed the S and P 500. It's not by a gargantuan margin. Doesn't need to be though, right? Doesn't have to be. And but to your point, so since uh, I'll hit a couple of the numbers. So since 20, 2006, since he started this, the buy list has an 18 year compound gain of 573 percent against mm -hmm. the S and P's 447 percent. So outperformed. Uh, and I don't remember exactly what the since 2016 uh, number is, but in the, actually, I might have it here. Let me, let me just check to see, because I think I might've taken that down. Uh, since 2016, you know, what I did was I said the value of $1 invested uh, at the beginning of his fund would be about $2.57 today. So as you mentioned, pretty solid returns. I don't know why he's compared yeah. to Kathy Wood though. This like has nothing to do with Kathy Wood. No, this is Business Insider, and that's why I was making a joke about Kathy Witt. This is Business Insider trying to create a headline that creates clicks because the actual title of this article, and Bob, thanks for sending it. It's it's great to um, talk through it, but the actual title is A Finance Blogger Has Outperformed Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway and Kathy Wood's ARC Since 2018 for filing as ETF of Boring Stocks. That headline is like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's seven, it's like, seven lines long, first of all. Well, and they they picked two names that they thought might get clicks. This yeah. is, I'm sure, it's got Bill Ickman really fired up. But for Eddie, I loved this. I know, um, you know, his Twitter personality and think that's entertaining and knowledgeable. I did not know about his ETF. And what he's doing here is sticking, he has a disciplined system. It's fairly concentrated. It's only 25 stocks. And the end of this article has a quote, which certainly made me chuckle and I like. It says, we are as lazy as possible. And that's the goal. You know, I, I love think it. he's being, I think he's being slightly hyperbolic there. I'm sure he's not. I'm sure he wants great research to go into his stock picks. But there's no reason to overcomplicate this thing. And you and I have had an ongoing conversation on and off the pod about all the complexity that gets put into investment management. And in some cases, there's a, a great podcast on Invest Like the Best recently who talks about the type of investment managers that get funded. And often, the things that get them funded are not the best performance. 
I, th- I I like Eddie's approach in terms of it's simple, it's easy, it's easy to comprehend, and not only has a performance been solid, but I don't think he's really. I think he's being true to himself, which is amazing. Yeah, it's great. And I'm on that same note. I'll give a couple other numbers that that'll lead me into something that relates to that. So the expense ratio he has on this ETF is 0.84%. And I'll give some other detail on that. The category average, according to what I was looking at here, expense ratio is 0.47%. He has about $100 million assets under management in the ETF. And this is the one that I really enjoyed in comparison to category average. His holdings turnover is 18%, right? As we mentioned, he has 25 stocks. He sells five, buys five once a year. The category average holdings turnover, so the turnover of the equities that are in the portfolio is 11,520%. That basically means you don't hold anything for any real period of time is is what 11,000% annual turnover looks like. And one, one, what I want to hit on here, so that's to your, to the, the boring point, to the simple point, right? This isn't a, when we've discussed Kathy Wood before, which is, he's wrongly being compared to in here. We just got discussed Kathy Wood. It's like Monday, she's selling a stock and Friday, she's buying that same stock. Like what, what the heck is going on uh, in this quote unquote research that's being done. But I want to talk about the expense ratio for a moment. Mm -hmm. Two things. One uh, there's a there's a quote that Eddie has. I don't think it's in this piece, but elsewhere that he where he uh, he's talking about the ETF, and he's like, when I was a buyer of ETFs, I complained so much about the expense ratio, like the cost of being an ETF. He said, now that I'm on the other side, I understand how much it costs to run these things, and so it makes yep. more sense. Uh, the the way he has his expense ratio structured is it's like a fulcrum fee, I believe, is the the terminology that's used here. I hadn't heard that before. Maybe you have. And so the way it works is the base fee is 0.75%. And then that adjusts up or down depending on the performance of the ETF. So it goes from 0.75%. If he underperforms the S&P 500, the fulcrum fee goes down. If he uh, overperforms, then it goes up. And so a 0.84% means that in whatever period this was calculated here, he had overperformance of the S&P 500, so it costs more. Yeah, props to Eddie. That's really cool. I like yeah, that structure. Cool. And cool. as he, you know, if he desires to get this thing well north of 100 million, he'll be able to bring his fee percentage down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's on the smaller side, so. Very yeah. cool. I, it's it's so funny, like there's, there's so much good information out there that I totally ha- know and interact, have interacted with Eddie on X, but I did not know about his fund. This is a fun article. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Where do you want to head into next? Diggles, I want you to reach into the fishbowl first. All right, I'm going to reach into the fishbowl, and I'm going to talk about money, but not just any money. I'm going to talk about perishable money, disintegrating money, money that melts in your hands and not in your mouth type money. You know what money I'm talking about? What? Where did you find an article called What If Money Inspired? And what inspired you to click on it? If I see uh, so, this title, I'm like, uh, that sounds stupid. Let's move on. Now, I think you're going to prove me wrong on this. And I'm excited about that. But I might not. But it's an interesting thought experiment, even if I don't. So I found it on the internet. <laughs> and what inspired me to click on it was I said, what if money did expire? 
So <laughs> no, I might get this pronunciation wrong, but Noema Magazine or Noema Magazine, something like that. It's N-O-E-M-A Magazine is where this is on the internet. What If Money Expired? It's written by Jacob Bainham. The premise here, it's a long one. So for y'all that are interested, you can go and read it when we put it on the Substack. But the premise here is that there are goods that are purchased with money, like potatoes, as an example. That potatoes, if they just sit in the corner, they're going to go bad. And so you have these goods that money purchases that go bad, but money doesn't. And so what ends up happening is during times where you need money to circulate through the economy, which is most times, but sometimes you really need money to circulate through the economy, oftentimes are the times where people actually want to hoard it. And so you have people that need, to, in order for them to survive or thrive, they need to sell perishable goods. In order to sell those perishable goods, they need them bought with something that's not perishable. And so there's like a mismatch that sits in the economy. That's the, the general premise. So there was this guy back in the day named Silvio Gassel, and he had this idea. What if you could just make money perishable? Like, what would that look like? So you could solve that imbalance. This comes with all types of flaws, by the way. But what I found to be interesting is that he came up with the concept, he tested a little bit himself, he died, and then a whole bunch of other people have been tested at since, like in cities, at the city, county, local level, it's been tested. During uh, the Great Depression, someone tried to get FDR to pick this up, and FDR was like, I got bigger fish to fry, basically, is, is what happened. Mm -hmm. But I'll give, you a, I'll give you a couple points here. So there's this quote that says, we must make money worse as a commodity if we wish to make it better as a medium of exchange. That gets back to the same point that I was saying before around the, the potatoes versus money. So what he tried to do is he said, let's invent this form of expiring money. And specifically, this is so not scalable or practical. But the idea that he had specifically was he created this thing called a free geld, which means free money. And the free geld on the back of the bill would have 52 little boxes on it, one box per week. And so every week, you'd have to take a 10 cent stamp like actual 10 cents that you have to buy in the stamp and put it on the back of the, the bill. So then it costs you $5.20, about 5% of a $100 bill to hold on to that $100 bill. Now, how impractical is that philosophy? Pretty freaking impractical. But the idea was that the longer you hold on to this, the, the less money it's worth. So similar to what happens with inflation, right, naturally. However, a difference is if you put that money into the bank, the bank also has to pay that same amount. So the banks are now more incentivized to lend it out. So the idea is that there's much more free circulation that ends up happening in the economy because of this. And some of the tests that have been run, or maybe they weren't tested at the time, but people have just tried this, it does show that circulation goes up dramatically when you have a situation like this. Uh, but people get real upset. Uh, and by people, I mean specifically Banks, central banks, right? Financial authorities get very upset. So anytime that it's come into circulation, something like this, a bank basically just bans it is when it's occurring. Uh, and so it, it doesn't stick around. Um, this idea is like money was created as a medium, as a store of value and a medium of exchange. Yep. yep basically yep. the purpose of money. And in order for money to be good money, it has to have those two characteristics and it has to be easily transferable 
uh, portable, right? It can't be like 7,000 pound rocks because then your medium exchange gets lost. So this thought experiment, one, I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting, but I'm not like blown away by it. But two, it's kind of asking money to do something that money wasn't created to do. And that just makes my head spin. That's very true. And and to the things that you named, the the exchange and value, the store of value point goes away in this. Yeah. Like it and it it's it's the yeah, it's built to not do that. Like quite explicitly. And so it's like we designed frosted flakes to eat at breakfast. And then we say, Oh, you know what we should have? Frosted flakes that you're never allowed to eat at breakfast. Like it just seems yeah, like a yep. broken hypothesis. Am I absolutely crazy here? No, 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 no. You're not at all. I think it's it's a it's an intriguing concept. And one one example of something that I read was there's someone named I forgot the first name, but uh, Andolfato, something like that. I think an Italian guy that yeah. in the COVID pandemic crisis, financial crisis situation, said, "Okay, this is a time like there are times where we need money to circulate, and if the government is going to." print checks and put them out there. What the government wants to do is for them to circulate. But during that period of time, generally people are so scared that they just hoard it. Like they get the money and hoard it. And so it doesn't have the same impact. So what he said is, he goes, this is the, this is the type of time he wrote this paper. said like, this is the type of time where maybe something like this can work. And then, but he then said, after he wrote the paper, it seems like he wrote the paper, then reflected on it, which seems like the wrong order of operations, but still, it seems like he wrote this paper and then I'm reflecting on it. He said, but the thing is that for those that don't have savings, it still kind of screws with them. Like it helps in the momentary situation. But he said, people that have savings, they'll get this new form of money and they'll spend it like normal money and their savings will still yeah. sit there. But the people that don't have savings, they will then benefit in the short term, but now they actually can't build savings. So if you only used it in temporary times, it's such a short term fix that the, on the other side, the people are still the same people you're effectively trying to help. Are still in the same situation. We did this. There, like, there's other ways to do this. If you take interest rates to zero, you effectively say you have to take that, a negative. You have to take a negative. But, 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 okay. And that goes back to our conversation with James McIntosh from the Wall Street Journal, who, That's right. like, that thought experiment blew my mind, and I'm so happy he came on the show and we walked through it. But even if, even if they're just at zero. You take away all the incentive for, you take away a lot of the typical incentive to save. You encourage people to spend, and that leads to bubbles in the economy. So I, I'm sure the circulation of money increases at zero interest rate policies as it would compared to at 15% interest rate policies. I don't know. I'm just nonplussed about this. <laughs> it's fair. I found it personally, I found it to be an interesting, not just thought experiment, but like, as I mentioned before, the part that I found to be most interesting was how many places it tried it. This guy came up with it. He tried it for a bit. The government basically got upset with him. This was in the early 20th century and yeah. shut it down. He dies. And then since then, other people have tried it, it, it within the US too, different cities and counties like it. There's something to it. There must be some kind of benefit. And where this ends, whether it's long-term benefit or not, but like there's some perceived benefit where, where this piece ends is it says with hard currency, right? Bills, when you're taking 
a bill and putting 52 stamps on the back, like it doesn't quite work. But going back to your James McIntosh point says when we when we have digital currencies, it's much easier to start to play with these kinds of things like where you can you can change the cost of it or not, whether or not it's a good idea or you should. But it was saying like that's a much easier way to end up testing this. So if y'all are like Skippy and like, why are you wasting my brain cycles with this? Then cool. Thanks for listening. If you're not and you want to want to bring the intelligentsia up in it, Substack Monday. You can click on it, check it out. As I mentioned to Skippy, it's on the internet. Let's just let's just say, like, just go listen to our podcast with James McIntosh. It's gonna be, be it in my opinion, it's better done than this. It's definitely article, it's, it, it's a similar yeah. take. Um it's better. It's better. That's true. We'll link to that in the Substack right. too. Quiz for you. The greatest college coach in modern history retired this week. Deion Sanders? Yeah. <laughs> Nick Saban. Nick Saban. Oh, okay. okay. Um, in Nick Saban's time at Alabama, which isn't even the he coached at Michigan State, he coached at LSU, he had 123 draft picks. What's the total earnings of those players in the NFL? <laughs> uh, here, hold on. Let me, let me just do some real quick math. That'll still be wrong, but at least I won't be so ballpark wrong. 123. Um, let's say 150 million, two billion dollars, two billion dollars. I was close. Uh, oh, hold on, that's what I. That's the, I meant to. I I put the dot in the wrong place. Yeah, <laughs> I meant one one point two five billion is what I what I meant. But uh, I'm still sure, wrong. Yeah. Still wrong. Okay, so Nick Saban, fanatical, passionate coach, uh, based on record and national titles, clearly the best in modern history. Many would argue he's the best ever. Uh, there's a story about Nick Saban that relates to passion that I want to tell you. I'm uh, Diggles. You've never heard this one. I can tell you that. So Nick Saban is a young coach in like 1985 coaching defensive backs at Michigan state university. He takes a trip to Youngstown, Ohio, uh, to recruit some players, right? During one of the trips, he runs into Bob Stoops, who turned into a legendary coach in his own right. He coached at Oklahoma. And they meet in this like local pub, and they just get really engrossed in the conversation about football. So they start diagram plays, everything else. They're there for hours in the back of this pub, right? What happens as they are diagramming plays is someone walks in with a gun, holds up the, <laughs> the pub at gunpoint, robs the place. Coach Nick Saban and Coach Bob Stoops continue to diagram plays. When the police show up two hours later, they're asking who they can talk to as eyewitnesses. And they go to the bartender and they go, hey, were those guys here during the robbery? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, yeah, but they did it. This is not even worth talking to him. So the police go talk to him effectively. And they didn't even notice that the place got robbed. <laughs> they were so <laughs> passionate about diagramming their plays. There's an invested parallel here. Just go find something that you were passionate about, about that you could either have a weekly podcast with a buddy about, or <laughs> that you could be in a place that gets robbed and not even notice. Isn't that insane? That's some serious focus. It reminds me of a of a story that is not nearly as impressive, but it just reminds me of it. I was down in uh, San Jose at one point out in California at a poker poker table playing a cash game. I go all in. The whole place starts to shake. 
there's an earthquake going on. So everyone's like, you know, gathering up their chips and everything and, and leaving. Yeah. This dude across the table from me is just sitting there, like playing with his chips and thinking. I was like, dude, this this hand is over. <laughs> like, this is not a situation that is any. But it's like everyone else, people are like running. People are trying to cash in. And this dude is still just sitting there contemplating what's going on in the middle of the, of the hand. Some people, man. Some that people. Extreme level of focus is there's there's so many stories about him this week, but. Another thing is basically if you did an interview with Nick Saban, you almost couldn't make small talk. And it's the reason because the reason his people would tell you that is because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about your kids. He doesn't care about the weather. All he cares about is football. You know, like this is a guy who will complain that he can't be out recruiting when he's playing in the national championship because no one else is playing in the national championship except him and everyone else is getting an advantage on him. Like just lived in a state of fear that drove the most impressive results you can imagine. What do his people, like what do his athletes think about him as a person? I ask because it makes me think, I might be wrong here, but it makes me think that he's not one of those people that someone would say, I would follow him anywhere, but they might say he helped me to get to victory. Yeah, I mean, when someone like that retires and when they win that much, you don't hear much criticism, right? I know he had some run-ins with folks, but generally I've heard really positive things. And I think it's because he's super demanding, but everyone was able to see the results. So his yeah. methods are validated, right? So it's almost unquestionable when you have that much success, people are going to like you. Yeah, yeah. It's like if, if Steve Jobs didn't create the iPhone, that's a different... Right? Different story. Different, different story. And all his uh, challenging personality characteristics yeah. kind of get overlooked because of some of the results he had. Exactly. All right. I want to that's shift gears slightly. Okay. Oh, no, I was going to say that's cool. Thanks for sharing. We've unfortunately been talking a lot about private equity on the show recently, and I don't really know why, but it frequently comes up. So Dan Rensmunson published an article this week. That's with Verdad, and it's called... The dispersion delusion. Did you catch this one, Diggles? Uh, yeah, I looked through this one. Okay. So I just want to talk about it at a high level. To me, this knocks my, knocked my socks off, but maybe because of pre-existing biases for me. He says, what everyone in private equity will tell you is they get unique returns that aren't available in the public markets. And one of the ways they demonstrate that is by the dispersion of returns that you can see across the private equity space. Meaning... That if you compare that to a typical stock that's around the same size, a typical company that's around the same size, they'll show you a graph that says, hey, listen, the top performers, the most skilled private equity companies significantly outperform and the worst private equities significantly underperform. So there's more skill required in our game. And therefore, if you send us money and you pick someone like us that has tons of skill, we can get you returns that aren't available anywhere else. That's why we're going to charge you these crazy fees. Follow so far? Following. Well, Dan and team, like they do with a thousand issues, said, really? Let's actually compare apples to apples here instead of apples to oranges. So they looked at small public stocks that are typically of the size of these companies that get purchased by private equities and the roll-ups or whatever else. They normalized some characteristics. They threw the same amount of debt on those public equities that the private equity folks typically do 
And do you know what they found? It's pretty much the exact same nonsense. You can get these returns from publicly traded small companies with the same amount of leverage. And in a lot of cases, you can even get better returns. So I won't go like deep into the weeds. This is on the subtech if you guys want to read it. But Dan has this incredible knack to kind of take conventional wisdom that gets the stories that gets told and just say, like, let's actually see if that's true. And most of the time he debunks these things in a way that says, it, it often says value investing is great, which is why I'm biased to analysis. <laughs> but this one, I just thought it's so well done. Really awesome piece. I agree with that point. I also like there's a there's a point in the piece where they first select random public companies that are in that are of that size and the results don't come out to be quite the same. Mm-hmm. They said, okay, but now if you're a private equity company, what you're doing is you're you're putting some comb over it. Like this is where let's call it yep. the skill comes into play. You have a filter where you're looking for the companies. And so I said if we take if you take a filter and say what are companies that we would to shorthand it actually want to invest in <laughs> that are of that size, that's where the returns come out to be. I, I liked that differential. What I couldn't quite figure out here is whether I'll call it in practice, it would be the same. Meaning when you, are they taking the same number of dollars, like absolute dollars and going into the public stock market and the same absolute dollars and going into the private market? Because when you're looking at companies that small, I don't know what the like the liquidity of the shares looks like. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wonder if practically it could work out. I think in the academic sense, you can get the same piece. I wonder if practically it would work out. Yeah, I hear I didn't have that concern, um, but I think if you had all the money that's in private equity that's making these pitches, actually try and do it in public markets, you may run out of public market small cap stocks with certain characteristics yeah. to make yeah. those returns. Yeah. But th- that goes back, that's almost a debate like, well, what happens if the whole world starts uh, passively investing? Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. E- right? So it's like, I would say I'd love to see that shift take place. And then if you got to a point where the small cap stocks were no longer of attractive valuations because so much money was being thrown at them, then you have to recalibrate your strategy, which happens everywhere, right? You you always have to evolve as things yeah. get over-purchased. That's right. Regardless, it was a really fascinating take and an intelligent way to approach the problem. Oh, that was yeah. cool. I liked it. Shall we talk about AQR? Shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Quant Winter's Tale. It's a, this is a movie I'd like to watch. Maybe only me, but I would like to watch this movie called A Quant Winter's Tale. But instead, we're going to talk about a Financial Times article that is called A Quant Winter's Tale. And this is, this is your neck of the woods, like hardcore here. But AQR, we've talked about Cliff Asnes here on the show who runs AQR. And this piece is a part uh, insight into Cliff's personality and then a part of how that personality matches with the the macro environment and the industry and is fun. It's like a really well-written piece. But what the Winter's Tale is, it's saying there is this period of time, you know, over the last decade, not the full last decade, but over the last decade, where things got real shivery. They got real cold from a return perspective when it came to the style of investing that AQR does. That's the winter's tale that it's talking about. 
But then this is this uh, this resurgence that's happened over the last couple of years. But this is about with going back into the personality, like Cliff. How do you deal with a situation where people are pulling their money out of your out of your fund? What do you think this means for the long term? Like it was really fascinating going into all those those elements. Jerks and Harry Gray. I want to shout out. It's uh, in the FT as we mentioned, Robin Wigglesworth. It's like a month old. So this this was really popular, and I just the I didn't get to read it until right now. Again, this goes back to the overarching point in a way that sometimes returns aren't actually what people are chasing, um, and sometimes they are. But it also shows some of the challenges that um, AQR has had and the movement of funds inside the firm and what that's done to staffing. You know, it, it really looks at, I'd say value investing, but it's really more factor investing because AQR runs a lot of different factor strategies. And the quote that jumped off the page for me is simply Cliff saying, if it wasn't occasionally excruciating, it would probably get arbitraged away. He's talking about factor out performance there. I think it's exactly right. We, yep. we talk about that a bunch here. Right? I mean, the the simply put, the thing that we mentioned is the volatility that exists sometimes is painful, or I should say potentially painful if you aren't able to, to ride through it. And that is where a lot of the outperformance can come from because if you're like, oh, let's, let's go back. We had a... Like half an episode, we talked about GLP-1 drugs and the impact that it was having on Dexcom, right? Which is a large part of my portfolio. Mm-hmm. It would be completely rational and understandable at that point in time to go, you know what? I know I've got this strategy that I implement, but like, I think this might be the end. I'm going to sell Dexcom. Yes. Then Dexcom comes back with like a 65% resurgence <laughs> in the next like two months as the fears waned away. And this is not just about Dexcom. Like this happens over and over and over again with individual stocks, with factors, like full like value or growth. Like they go in and out of favor in a month, in a quarter, in a year, or sometimes in multi-years. Yeah. And the brilliant thing that Robin did with this article is he uh he tells so much of the backstory about how the factors were tested and the strategies that came out of the University of Chicago and other places. Eugene Pharma and everyone else, you know, dates back from Benjamin Graham Arrow to Henry Markowitz. If you really want a backstory on how like the hypothesis of momentum investing or value investing kind of yep. came to be, Robin lays it out here, all all in telling a story about AQR and Cliff. It's just a it's kind of a masterpiece of an article, really worth your time. But then when you get to the recent performance. Well, and and generally the factors that now people seem to believe have like staying power and and we believe they have staying power because of the human psychology associated with excruciating underperformance where people say, I can't handle it. Like, even if this is going to make me more money than the S&P 500, the pain that the volatility brings me is not worth it. That's at least my yeah. philosophy. So it breaks down. Those are effectively quality, momentum, value, and in some cases, uh, volatility, like a minimum vol- volatility factor. That doesn't mean there's not 70 other so-called factors that people are trying to run strategies on. But the ones that are generally accepted today 
are kind of those four. And when I, that's the investing side, which is awesome. What I also enjoyed going into the, it looks into the personality of Cliff. I like this example of a tweet that they, they provided of him because the, yeah, sometimes goes off the rails. They discussed him like punching in computer monitors, but here's this Twitter exchange. So someone else says, don't you underperform the market? Says that to Cliff. Mm-hmm. Cliff's response is not over reasonable time horizons, but occasionally, aren't you a cowardly little nobody? Come talk that beep in person, little coward. Oh, and beep you and yours. <laughs> um, if you look at their total assets under management for AQ. Oh, you're going back? Okay. Uh, no, it ties it. It ties it to the cliff exchange. I just maybe want to put a bow on it with this because I don't think people understand how, how complex investment management can be. They went from like... Uh, roughly 20 billion in assets under management in, in 2008 all the way up to like 220 billion in 2017 and from 2017 to like 2020 was effectively the the quant winter that this article talks about and now their assets are less than 100 million bucks so the the price of admission here, right? The volatility that Cliff and his team knows are going to come in order to have a chance at outperforming the S&P cause their fee-based revenue basically to be cut in half over a seven-year period. Think of that. Think of what that does to your office space, to the amount of people you can employ. Like, yeah, it's a mess, right? Yeah. To run yeah. one of these strategies is a mess. And I, I just think, I don't know. I just love this one. Yep. It's, good. it's a good one. Also on the Substack, skippydoogles.substack.com. What else you got? One last thing. Uh, Howard Marks has made me a ton of money in my investing career. And his new memo is out. It's called Easy Money. Really long read, but you can download the podcast. Just spend some time with it. He really is talking about his concerns of the zero interest rate environment and building on other memos he's written recently. So many aha moments in there. I just loved it. We'll put we'll put that one on Substack too. Well, that's all I got. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good week.